Hi there friends, it's Rod, just introducing the podcast episode for this week. This was our last week looking at Psalms of Orientation, and it was a strange week to be looking at Psalms of Orientation as we are in the midst of the protests in the US over the death, the murder of George Floyd, and the protests in Australia over Aboriginal deaths in custody. So it seems like a time of great injustice and disorientation. So a strange week to be looking at Psalms of Orientation. Um, we attempted to find a way to hold them together, uh, find a way to, to sit with our sense of injustice while we read a psalm of, of justice. Uh, th- so this week I decided to include all of the, all of the conversation, all of the discussion, uh, and to not include a five-minute Merrill because the discussion is quite long. It's about 30-plus minutes I just thought it was worth sharing it and I want to thank all the people that participated in the the conversation and all the perspectives that they brought. I particularly want to thank Anita for for sharing her experience of of racism and it was it was very vulnerable and very brave of her. So um thanks and admiration uh for Anita. I I also wanted to include just a trigger warning that uh there are some there's some use of some racial terms of abuse in this episode, so I wanted people to be aware of that. I've I've also tried to to pretty much leave this episode as it as it is with uh, with all the silences and all the pauses. So um, you just have to to bear with us. Um, so I don't want to make it any longer than it needs to be. Uh, so I will hand over to Warwick. Warwick Red the psalm for us on Sunday. So he will begin this um, podcast for us. Thanks, Warwick. Psalm 146. Hallelujah. Praise Yahweh, my soul. I will praise you all my life. I will sing praise to my God where I live. Do not trust in rulers, in mortals in whom there is no salvation. When their spirits depart, they return to the earth. And on that day, their plans perish. Happy are those whose help is the God of Israel. Hope is in Yahweh, their God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in it. Yahweh, you keep faith forever. You secure justice for the oppressed. You give food to the hungry. You set captives free. You give sight to the blind. You raise up those who are bowed down. You love those who do justice. You protect strangers. You sustain orphans and the bereaved. You fought the way of the corrupt. Yahweh will reign forever. Your God, Zion, through all generations. Alleluia. Just going to hand over to Rod now for the rest of the service. Thanks, Warwick. Um, so as, as always, we wanted to begin by... Um, seeing what people noticed or what they wondered about this um, passage. Uh, While you're, I guess, reflecting on what you noticed and what you wondered about this passage, I guess I just want to acknowledge um, the strangeness of a psalm like this on a week like this, you know, a psalm that begins, 
Alleluia, praise Yahweh, my soul. I will praise you all my life. I'll sing praise to my God while I live. Um, on a week where um, what's happening in the States is happening after the murder of George Floyd and, as Percy said, um, when we have protests reminding us of yeah, more than 430 Aboriginal deaths in custody since the Royal Commission, um, it is, it is a really strange contrast, a psalm like this, with, um, with this reality that we're living through. And I guess um, before I hand over to you to see what your wonderings and notices were, I, I want to remind us of something that Meryl said in, in one of her five-minute Meryls a few weeks ago, and that, that is that we always need to make um, a reading of the Psalms a dialogue. Um, a dialogue between um, the psalm itself and the reality that we inhabit uh, and that it's okay to have that kind of honest dialogue between the reality that we experience and what what we find in the psalms. So I, I guess I want to encourage you not to be afraid to do that um, this morning as you as you notice things in this psalm and wonder things about this psalm. Don't be afraid to um, to bring those notices, noticings and wonderings into, into conversation with, with the, the reality that we are um, experiencing at the moment. Um, so did, uh, there'll be a bit of time after I, I speak also for some reflection, but were there, were there any things that really stood out for people um, this morning from this, this psalm that they want to share? You can either just unmute yourself or raise your hand and I can unmute you. There's aren't, there aren't that many of us, so just unmute yourself if you've got something you want to share. Rod, I'd just like to say that in just reading it, I, you know, I, I notice, it, as you said, it gives food to the hungry, sets prisons free, gives sight to the blind, um, lifts up those who are bowed down, um, watches over the foreigner, sustains the fatherless and the widow, frustrates the ways of the wicked. I don't actually see that happening. Mm. And I'm a bit confused. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's so much what I've been experiencing and I guess what I want us to, to, to sit with a bit today. I, I, Rod, I had a similar... Um, reflection when you read it because it sort of jars it's like well this is not happening um sort of from floating into my mind from somewhere else was the phrase trust in the slow work of god and uh i'm not sure where that came from but uh it was trust in the slow work of god not not as in a compensatory thing or whatever but it, i just yeah i just just offer that thought that it, it it was coming from somewhere almost to speak to that that yeah um god's got it but it's slow you know yeah and you know i think it it is happening but it's not happening as widely and as fast as we would like yeah. we can all quite plenty of cases where each of these things are happening for some people um but there's yeah uh so many other people, so many other needy people where 
you know, as you said, Rod, you know, these riots around the uh, and demonstrations around the world are evidence of that, mm. of injustice. And poor old, yeah, George Floyd, it wasn't, yeah. you know, wasn't true for him if he'd read it the, no. you know, the week before. Yeah. 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 I think it, acknowledging how horrific some of this last week has been, I actually find it somewhat hopeful. Yeah. I feel like that do not trust in rulers, um, you love those who do justice, Is I find that quite encouraging and I kind of feel like it's a nice counterpoint to Trump's stunt in front of the church yeah. um, to actually say, look, this is not what is being said in the Bible, whether you look at Jesus or whether you look back in other in things like the Psalms. Yeah. This is an uprising of people's justice, isn't it? Mm. I really like that um, the quote, do not trust in rulers, and that for me is really evocative of, of the police and the way that I think as a, as a nation we need to recognise that the police are not trustworthy and for us they might seem like a useful uh, entity in society but for so many marginalised people the police are never safe. I was um, just on that. Um, I really want to recommend an episode of On Being, which I think it was this week or last week. It's an interview with uh, Resma Menachem, who's a, an African-American psychotherapist who actually ironically practices in Minneapolis. Um, and he talks about um, the way these things uh, inhabit our bodies. And so he talks a lot about the way um, uh, bodies of colour see white bodies and the way um, um, the bodies of the police are perceived by um, African-American people. And so it talks very much about the way it doesn't matter in a sense or it does matter what we think and what our, our position is, but that what happens in our bodies when we encounter um, someone who's different from us, what happens in the body of a white person, what happens in the body of an Aboriginal person when they encounter um, a police officer, they're profoundly different things. And if we're not aware of um, what's happening in people's bodies, that sense of, of fear, as you say, Percy, that sense that this person is not, cannot be trusted, that this person is a threat, these are things that, it, that we carry in our bodies and they, we, we have to be aware of, of that. Um, in other people. Sorry if that's a bit vague, but um, I, I really want to recommend listening to that episode. It is, it's quite um, quite powerful. It's on, on being. Did anyone else want to um, share anything? Yeah, it's just um, one thing I find, you know, the bit where it's like, Yahweh, you keep faith forever, you secure justice, and then this whole list of things. The thing that I often struggle with i think in my faith journey i've tried to move away from the idea of an interventional interventionalist god that will kind of do these things uh and and try and think about what you know what's our responsibility in giving food to the hungry setting captives free giving sight to the blind and yeah i think the i, I really struggle with 
trying to work out where my theology, I actually just don't know where my theology sits on that. Like I think um, uh, in this, in this Psalm, is it saying, is it, uh, are they trying to say, Oh, we don't have to do it. God's going to do it. Um, or are they acknowledging that actually as humans, we have as much, you know, we have responsibility in, in bringing all these things about and actually it's not good enough to sort of just say, sit here and say, God's going to do it. And uh, yeah, I just really, I don't, and I don't know where I sit mm. now trying to work out what, how much is God going to do and how much is it our job to do it? And and then are they different things is the bigger question. Mm. Uh, yeah. 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 Well, well, maybe I'll say a few things in response to that and then we'll have a little bit of time at the end um, for um, people to say more of us, Anita, uh, after I speak, to, to say a few things as well. Um, but um, but in, re- in response, I guess, to what Josh was saying, I, I do think that one of the, the biggest struggles we have with Psalms like this is the way that we've been taught to read them or the vision of God that, that we, um, we bring to these Psalms. Um, I think... For a lot of us, we grew up perhaps in a triumphalist context where we felt like um, God was going to do it all and that we didn't need to do anything. Um, and so as, uh, as someone like me, a privileged person, it was a way of, I guess, washing my hands of responsibility to do anything because I could go, um, doesn't matter what's happening in the world, God's, God's got it, God's, God's in charge, God is, um, has the power to make this happen kind of unilaterally without any human collaboration. And so um, reading this psalm was just, a, um, with that in mind, was just a way of uh, washing my hands of responsibility. Um, I guess the other way that, that people, that it has been read psalms like this is to, to spiritualise the psalm and, and make it all about heaven, make it all about life after death. So this isn't really saying anything about this world, um, this world's never going to change. Um, we don't need to do anything really because there's no point. Uh, we just need to wait until we die and individually go to be with God in heaven, which will be like what is described in this psalm. But we're, I think a lot of us in our churches were taught to, uh, to read psalms like this as, as almost entirely about the world to come and not about the world that we inhabit now. Um, and again, it was a way of washing our hands of responsibility for engaging with things like the murder of George Floyd and like Aboriginal deaths in custody, um, a way of kind of ignoring those things. Um, so I guess then the, the question is, what else can we do with Psalms like this? Um, because it can seem so jarring to read these Psalms in in the context of what what's going on in the states at the moment, um, and in the in the context of um, the ongoing realities that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples experience in this country, um, so it made it it made me wonder how, for example, the family of George Floyd would experience this psalm, um, how the families of um, those more than four hundred people who have died in custody. Uh, since the Royal Commission, how they would experience this psalm, I guess, as an, as an act of imagination. I mean, obviously, 
what would be even better would be to ask them. Um, and uh, to my shame, I haven't done this. I had the opportunity to do this this week. Um, though I will, I'll post Brooke Prentice's um, talk from Surrender this year, which I think speaks powerfully to these things um, uh, tomorrow. But I, I think obviously one answer is that um, there is no one way in which uh, African-American people or Indigenous Australians would respond to a psalm like this this week. Um, it would be in many, many ways for many, this would be an unbearable thing to read um, right now. But I, I'm also aware that um, that there's a very good chance that in a, in a huge number of African-American churches across America this Sunday, what they will be doing amongst other things, amongst songs of, of, of anger and, and grief, would be singing um, psalms of praise and songs of praise. And I think the, the reason why I say that is just because I think it's, that's exactly what, what would be happening, but also because um, in the words of, of Willie James Jennings, who is an African-American theologian, um, joy, joy is an act of resistance against despair and its forces. Uh, for him, Joy in African-American communities has always been that, an act of resistance against despair. And as we read Psalms like this, we, we also need to remember that, that this was put together, this, this book of Psalms came together in its final form during the exile, during the time when the Jews were an oppressed people in a foreign land, uh, essentially like like African-Americans having been ripped from their land and taken to another as, as an oppressed people. Um, it was in that context that they pulled these psalms together. And, yes, there are lots of those psalms that are psalms of, of grief and despair and disorientation, but, but there are also a lot of those psalms that are psalms of, of praise and joy and hope. Um, and perhaps that is because... For people, for people like the Jews in exile and like um, African-American people now and like the huge number of, um, of Aboriginal Christians meeting in, in churches around Australia this week, um, they know that if they let the oppressor take away their joy, then they are truly defeated. Um, and that despair, there's always a place for despair, of course, but that um, despair will ultimately lead to death um, again, those, that's the words of um, Willie Jennings. Uh, so I guess, yeah, the, the sense that I, that I get this week is that, um, that somehow we need to find our way back to Alleluia um, and that that's not to bypass the processing of grief and pain, that's not to ignore grief and pain, but it's just to acknowledge uh, the reality that if, um, if we're to stand, um, if we're to survive experiences of, of, of grief and despair and injustice, then um, somehow we have to make our way back to, to a place of joy. I was um, going to talk more about this and bang on about the contrast between the Stoics and the early Christians um, because what we all need at a time like this is more from a straight white man, but um, I'm not going to. Uh, so there's 
a couple more things I want to say before communion, but now I just want to yeah, quickly open it up. No, it doesn't have to be quick. <laughs> just want to open it up uh, as a space for people to respond to what I've said. Um, and um, yeah, after the a conversation that we had earlier in the week, I just want to invite Anita to, um, to start that conversation. If she's happy to, I'll unmute you, Anita. There we go. Hi. Um, it's been a really emotional week this week. So um, I'm going to struggle to talk a bit, which is unusual for me. <laughs> um, yeah, I think anyone who has uh, experienced racism through their whole life, this has been a really traumatic Traumatic week um, because even though, um, yeah, by no means I am making a connection with the level of historical oppression and genocide that Aboriginal Australians have suffered and also, um, you know, slave trade in the US that has led to all such a level of discrimination. Um, I think anyone who is of colour has um, experienced a life of different treatment. Um, and I put up a post this week on my Facebook, and I know some of you are um, friends, but it was a post about uh, what I'm finding hard is uh, in, the, in the milieu that I um, socialise in, people aren't necessarily going to be the people who are putting their knees on someone's neck. But um, what I'm finding, what I found uh, is that there's not much space to, for uncomfortable conversations. So a lot of people will put up the, you know, a, a Black Lives Matter hashtag or, or donate or read articles. But very rarely have I ever had anyone say to me, can you tell me what it's like to live um, as a person of colour? And so I put up something uh, just to say some of the experiences that I've had. Uh, and I might just share it because I th what I heard was that people didn't know that this is what happens. <laughs> When you are of colour, <laughs> so I'm just going to read out some of the things that have happened. So yeah, yeah. So um, from being at school, getting tied up with cotton string and being called a nigger, being called a coon in front of class while having all your classmates. <laughs> throw bits of rubber at your head. You're always getting asked to do the random check for explosives, which is hard when you are an international lawyer and you travel for your job and your white colleagues are standing there waiting and watching you, being told and yelled at numerous times to go back to where you come from. Um, looking at your organisation and realising that there is no one who looks like you in any senior positions, but then being told you're not quite the right fit for managerial positions, being asked on, like it ranges for everything, online dating apps, where are you from, how exotic you are, and how beautiful Indian women are, which is hilarious when I think, would anyone ever say how beautiful white people are? having men admit that they prefer to date white women, having people remark how my English is very good, a restaurant owner assuming that I'm the 
Uber Eats delivery person when I go to get takeaway, having my boss joke that I should wear a sari on an interview panel to show up diversity. When I was in Paris um, being offered an apartment by phone because they knew I was Australian, but when I turned up, they said the apartment was no longer available. And I guess, like, that's just a couple of experiences. But I guess, um, you know, when I look around the world, I, I don't, when I, when, if I was white, I'm guessing I would see people like myself in senior positions. And what I see are people like myself are the Uber Eats delivery drivers. They're the people cleaning the poles during COVID. They are the cleaners in the organisation. Um, it's just really hard to not um, respond to that. And then when, when you see that, when that's your everyday experience, I don't see that privilege getting translated, I guess. Um, and even just yesterday, I was in by the bins um, in my apartment complex and someone said to me, I was talking about security and, and someone was talking about, you know, oh, we used to have Indian security, but they were just too passive and they didn't do anything. And this was a white person telling me this. And I, and I always think what would, you know, I'm constantly having to jump in and get angry and defend myself. And I think, gosh, wouldn't it be amazing if someone could actually step in and help and what difference would that make? So I guess my, my comment on my Facebook thing was about just talking to people all around because I think it's easy to other this issue and to say it's about African-Americans, it's about Indigenous Australians, and yet it's happening all around. So I think it's about just listening to people's voices and sitting with really uncomfortable conversations and not shutting them down and not trying to placate someone um, and just sitting with the discomfort that we often have every single day um and also if you can and you have the opportunity to use that position of privilege that you have to maybe step in like asking permission I guess but stepping in and it m might result in a backlash I've had I basically lost my job because I stood up and said there was racism happening uh, and no one stood by to help because it's a really hard thing. You have to suffer really difficult consequences when you stand up in your everyday life. I think it's easy to stand up and go to a rally because there's a lot of people there, but to stand up for the people who are right next to you can be really hard and there will be backlash and there'll be really difficult conversations. But I just ask that people try and take that risk because it it. Otherwise, we're doing it ourselves and it's really tiring. <laughs> yeah. So just listen, I guess, and um, try not to uh, shut down conversations that are difficult, even if they raise discomfort. And, um, yeah, if you can, try, try and stand up <laughs> in your everyday lives. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much, Anita. Thanks for your courage in sharing that. I've got a couple more things to say, but I just wanted to, to you know, pause for a minute. Firstly, for all of that to sink in, but also just to see if there were any other things that people um, wanted to say.
Anita, I feel like I just want to come and put my arms around you and say sorry so much. We're aware that it goes on, but for someone, for someone um, else, someone on the fringes who's not experiencing that drip, drip effect all day, every day, all their lives, it's hard to understand just how it accumulates and how it impacts. Um, and all we can do is in our own space do what we can to make sure that it's not there. But uh, it's about how do we get that out and get that message to other people. And it's really, really hard. Sometimes when I challenge people, on their beliefs and on their prejudices, they push back to me and they say, what would you know? And I say, well, yeah, I'm not there. I'm not in your shoes. I don't know. But um, to get across that, it's difficult. Anita, thank you so much for your courage sharing that. That was amazing. Thank you. Thank you for being willing to share that emotional load with us in and I want to acknowledge that that of itself of is work and that even in this context it's 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 work that you've been willing to bring to us but it, it's clearly not easy and I just want to say thanks Thank you so much for sharing, Anita. Yeah, I know that must be just such a difficult space to share when you're the only one in this group right now who has, is experiencing these things. And I'm just so sorry that this is your reality and, and I can only speak for myself, but I'm going to do all I can to try to subvert that. And yeah, thank you for sharing. Anita, um, yeah, thank you for sharing for me as well. And listening to you, um, like I'm confronted um, the extent to which I, we all, um, yeah, just need to notice the little corners, like notice my own racism. Like it's it's really easy to point a finger at at someone else who is really obviously racist. Um, and just that acknowledgement of, um, you know, the, these, these unconscious assumptions that we make, you know, the, the Indian fellow outside the takeaway is an Uber driver. Or, or even um, I work at a school and, like, like, for me, sometimes I'm surprised when it's an Asian kid who's being a bit naughty in the classroom. You know, and there's something in me that's that that I, I guess it's a form of racism that that sort of just projects, hey, you're Asian, you should be studious and you know diligent, and and you're not one of the naughty kids, um, and and so um, you know I think there's a whole lot of people who are feeling well, I'm not racist. This is about other people and their racism, um, but I don't think that's going to get us far. Uh, I think we all need to um, 
have that really uncomfortable um, examination of our own racism. And, and it's just a reality that we are, we are conditioned. You, you, know, you know, we are conditioned. Um, and, and in our conditioning, there's a lot of unlearning that needs to happen. And, and I know like my brother, um, you, you know, he's a landlord with an investment property. And I can remember, you know, the instruction he gave to the real estate agent that I don't want you to look at tenants of these cultures, you know, because of a whole set of, um, um, you know, racist um, projections. Um, thank you, Nita. Yeah. Uh, thank you. And, and I'm also aware that, um, you know, in the current wave, um, you know, the emphasis, you know, in, in the US is African-Americans and the emphasis in Australia is Indigenous folk. Um, but, but, yeah, you really opened my eyes to the racism that all people of colour, um, you know, experience outside of those groupings. Um, yeah, thanks, George. Thanks, Anita. Oh, did you want to say something else, Anita? Or you? Oh, no, no, okay. Thank you. Um, yeah, I'm so conscious of how, um, yeah, as, as a white person, and again, this is something that, um, uh, Resma Menachem was saying how everything is everything is around the um, the comfort of white people. Um, white people remaining comfortable. Um, our entire culture is shaped around white people remaining comfortable. And um, so, yeah, I don't want to say too much now, but I do think that it's it's quite clear that one of the most important moves in terms of um, solidarity and disrupting our own privilege is to be, as Anita said, being willing to have uncomfortable conversations, being willing to be uncomfortable. Um, and, and as Anita said, it, it, that means doing more than um, things that we're comfortable to do. Um, attending rallies very, is a very important thing to do, but, but it can remain a very comfortable thing to do. Um, and um, I guess a lot of the a lot of the things I've been listening to and reading this week um, have just emphasised the the need for relationship, the need for um, genuine relationship and dialogue with people who are um, different from us. Um, however uncomfortable those conversations might be, um, as a, as a, as a key element in in any kind of real solidarity. Um, I guess the last thing I wanted to say is um, something that I heard last night, uh, just this on um, the Everything Happens podcast with Sally Bowler, uh, this guy, Gary Haugen, who is a, a, um, a founder of International Justice Mission, is basically lawyers working to help victims of violence in the developing world. Um, and he was just emphasising the fact that um, People do not need just little spasms of solidarity prompted by tragic events. Um, true solidarity is a long struggle in the same direction. Um, and so to stand in true solidarity, there's always the danger of burnout. 
Um, and he said that joy, for him, joy is the oxygen that allows you to avoid burnout, laughter and beauty and joy. Um, so I guess I wanted to, in a way, come, come full circle back to our, our psalm and to, um, to remind us that uh, if, if we're going to genuinely stand in solidarity with, with Aboriginal people, with people of colour, with people, oppressed people of, of all sorts, then it requires firstly genuine relationship, but it also requires um, remaining connected to joy um, and hope to make it sustainable. And I do wonder why, whether that, that's part of, the, part of the logic of the Psalms is this mix of Psalms of despair with Psalms of hope and joy um, with the Jewish people realising that um, to, to survive um, the long journey, um, it required also a remaining connected to, to joy. Um, so we're going to have communion now. Um, and I guess with communion, I want us to, I just want to share one more little quote with you that we'll reflect on as we eat and drink. Um, and this is a quote that might be difficult, if not impossible, to believe right now. Um, and that's okay if it is. It's okay if you can't actually say this or believe this right now. But it is it's a quote from... Um, Richard Raw's Daily Meditations, uh, where he says, no matter how slow and difficult it might be, liberation will succeed because no human power can keep Jesus in the tomb. No matter how slow or difficult it might be, liberation will succeed because no human power can keep Jesus in the tomb. Um, I guess it reminds me of that Martin Luther King Jr. quote about the arc of history is very slow, but that it bends towards justice. It's like that, um, what Dean was saying before. And sometimes it is impossible to believe that. But um, I guess if we are to be people who believe not just in the death of Jesus, but in Jesus' resurrection, then um, we have to um, try to find our way back to that belief that nothing can keep Jesus in the tomb. So let's eat and drink together.